totally at the World Cup. But perhaps this simple defeat of this little so-called champion will be a perfect example of how pathetically weak your society has become. Unbelievable, unbelievable this. Twenty-three. France advance. Uruguay say goodbye. Team from Brussels flex muscles, and Brazil have the biggest chasm shafting since Jerry Lee Lewis got married. Saturday then, football will be ticking more nations off its list of potential resting places. The hosts will be taking on Croatia in Sochi, while Saturday afternoon it is England-Sweden. Our thoughts on those matches coming up on Totally at the World Cup. All right, listener, we have Tom Williams. Hello. Got that <laughs> Jack Lang. Hi, James. And very much Duncan Alexander in the house. Hello. On what Twitter tells us is International Kissing Day. Did you know that? It was on Friday anyway. By now, listeners, sorry, you missed it. It's gone. But all sorts of other things happened on Friday, apart from kissing, like massive quarterfinal action in the World Cup in Russia. Hey, Tom. Yes, another very exciting day at this World Cup and a surprise, I'd say, in the second match. Belgium turfing Brazil out in really impressive fashion um, after France ground their way past Uruguay, uh, setting up a pretty spicy semi-final between the neighbouring countries. Absolutely. What a a local derby that'll be. Duncan, were you aware that this is the first World Cup ever with a semi-final stage that doesn't feature at least one of Argentina, Brazil or Germany? I was aware. Were you aware that all three of those nations exited the tournament at the same stadium? Uh, I wasn't aware of that. That is a very good start, yeah. Jack, meanwhile, for Brazil, for the Salisau, a disaster on Friday. What happened? I think there's a natural instinct to analyse everything in terms of that 7-1 defeat to Germany four years ago and loathe to go down that route. But there was certainly something in the first half that was a little bit 7-1-y. What what was that? Brazil played, just the way they... Were so open. They the ban to Casemiro, I think, really affected them. We know that Fernandinho is a good player, but I thought he had a horrible game, really. Much as he did indeed four years ago against Germany was one of the the main reasons for that, I think. And he really wasn't at the races here at all. Didn't protect the back four, and the defenders who had looked so solid in Brazil's first four games uh, looked a bit flighty didn't seem to be dealing well with Belgium's uh, formation, really. It's very Mm. interesting what Martinez did. I I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It was kind of a back three with wing-backs, but every now and again, Chadley would be drifting inside. And the way they cut Brazil open in that first half was remarkable. But from a Brazilian perspective, again, I think the Casemiro thing and just the shooting boots, they had a fair few decent chances. They could have been one or two up by the time Belgium took the lead. Think about the the Thiago Silva chance, Paulinho almost getting uh, a really clear shot at goal and then couldn't muster enough at the end. Well, we'll talk more about Brazil shortly, but first of all, let's get a very happy Belgian on the line. Christophe Tourer, who's literally there at the stadium in Kazan. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. 
I feel, still feel excited. It's like one of those moments you never think that's going to happen. It's uh, Belgium. I was too young to live what happened in uh, in uh, '86 when Belgium re reached uh, the semi-finals of the World Cup. But now it's that moment where you can say in a few years, "I was there at that game." This will be a game where we will be talking about for a few years, even if we don't make it into the finals, even if we uh, don't win the tournament. This is already a victory for our small country. This is what we wanted. We wanted it better than the quarterfinals in 2014. And now we're here in the semi-finals. Uh, yeah, quite unexpected after beating one of the big nations. It feels really great. Christoph, it wasn't just a good result. It was a great Belgian performance. Where did that performance come from, do you think? Well, I, I thought yeah, it was a bit... Uh, I think Martinez took a huge gamble with, with his system. It was something they only trained on for a few days. It was quite risky because for the say if we, for the same money we would it could have been 2-0 uh, after 10 minutes. We started a bit shaky, but I think Fellaini played a enormous a monstrous game. Dudley did his job. So the guys he he brought in the team they all had their impact. Lukaku played a good game. De Bruyne was brilliant at the counter-attack. Hazard was a joy to watch in the first half and in the last 15 minutes. He calls himself jokingly Hazardinho. I will say Hazardinho was the best Brazilian on the pitch in my eyes. So Nice. Christoph, were you a Martinez fan coming into this tournament? I thought he'd done a good job. We, we played entertaining football, but I still had doubts with... Will he be defensively strong enough to deal with a tournament? Like, is he going to gamble? Is he going to play all-out attack? That was a question we had with him too at Everton. But I think he's now with this performance. He convinced that this it was a risky. It was risky. Lukaku playing a lot on the right wing. I've seen that before with Everton, where he played Lukaku in an FA Cup quarter-final against Chelsea on the right. It paid off this gamble, so all credit to the manager also for the two substitutions he made. So, um, I think he's building up credit again with this. So, there's been a lot of joking about him. He's been haunted in England after 18 ban bad months at Everton, but still he has something as a manager, I think. Yeah. Entertaining football is one thing. So, and that's what we all like to see, I think. So. Christoph, such a special night this for you. What what's the what's the image that's going to stay with you from this game, from this this evening in Kazan? I think that image of that brilliant counter attack, where the two 0 is scored by De Bruyne, where Lukaku is a tank and runs through the defence and then finds De Bruyne, who yeah, I think it's a goal only in the Belgian side. It's only him that can score a goal like that, and then. The huge surprise on the faces in the press stand too. I saw even, we're always quite realistic and not cheering for the national team, but I saw even journalists celebrating that goal. So, yeah, and I also like that Courtois save in the end. That's the Courtois we know, that's the Courtois I know when he was 18 years old, when I saw him performing for Genk. And special memories of his, uh, of his last game for Genk, it was quite similar as this one. So that's an image I will remind too, that 
brilliant save uh, from a tall goalkeeper, if we might, if we may say that. Mm. All right, excellent. And so Belgium will be playing France in the semi-finals. Christoph, how special does that make the semi-final? The fact that it's against France. It will be very special for our Walloon brothers who like, uh, yeah, who have a good relationship with France. With France, but it will still be special for us too because, yeah, it's still. Uh, Still, still the neighbours. Um, yeah, it's going to be a difficult game, I think, because against Japan, we saw that we have difficulties against a very disciplined team. France are very disciplined, but we must enjoy that moment. We must just enjoy and relax. That I still think we will push ourselves in the underdog role, and that's the role we like as Belgians. We always tend to be the underdog, and that was today too. And that's. Would suit us the best. Let France uh, make, uh, dominate the game and then we will uh, counterattack like we've done today. Christophe Terreur of Het Leicester News. That's right. Wow, all hail Bobby Martinez. And what sounds like it was pretty much the best Belgian performance like ever, Tom. Yeah. I mean... If you think back, I mean, if you think back, Gareth Southgate on one hand, Martinez on the other. If you think back, I don't know, what, five or six years where they were. You wouldn't really have envisaged this scenario. You would not. Um, I think a lot of eyebrows were raised when Roberto Martinez got the Belgium job. Clearly, Mark Vilmots hadn't been able to get anything like the potential out of this squad that people had hoped he would. And, and Martinez felt like a punt. Um, we've been waiting for Belgium to do this, though. I mean, it, it feels like a shock because it's Belgium beating Brazil. But you look at that starting eleven, and even beyond that, the players on the bench, this is a squad full of top-level quality, much of it Premier League quality. So perhaps it shouldn't be that surprising that that Belgium were able to produce this sort of performance. And I think you have to give Roberto Martinez a lot of credit for the way that he set Belgium up. I mean, we, we tend to think of him as this very cavalier coach who's too closely wedded to attacking football. He doesn't have enough sophistication in his coaching in the way he sets his teams out tactically. But actually, if you look at the team that played tonight, I mean, as Jack said, their shape was a little bit fluid, but they were quite conservative in some ways in that you had two destroyers in midfield, Fellaini and, and Witzel, who both played very well. Um, Yannick Carrasco has been bombed out of the team. I don't think anyone was convinced by him as a wing-back. Nasser Chadley is another converted winger but has a lot more discipline in his game than Carrasco does. And I think perhaps the most important knock-on factor of those changes was that Kevin De Bruyne was freed to play further forward. Um, he scored that tremendous goal after that wonderful turn and run from Lukaku. And I suspect that in that France game, we'll probably see De Bruyne playing in a similar role alongside Hazard in support of Lukaku because clearly when he's playing as one of the two central midfielders as he has been prior to the Brazil game we've not seen anything like the De Bruyne that we usually see um, with Manchester City Yeah, well a lot of the the Belgian players had what what have been hailed the best games for their country this evening De Bruyne, Hazard was immense and Fellaini as Christophe was mentioning Yeah, I think what's interesting with this game actually is it is that uh, Martinez showed a kind of loyalty to Chadley and Fellaini who came on in the previous game and put them in, in the starting eleven. something that Brazil didn't do with um, Roberto Firmino and I think that you saw how much Brazil improved in the second half when they brought Firmino on um, and you do wonder how they would have got on if he'd have played the whole game. I mean, this really was the classic kind of game of two halves, really. Belgium had one shot in the whole of the second half. Wow. And how many did Brazil have? Because they were peppering them. 14, no, 16, I think, in the second half. They right. ended with 27, which is the second most of any team in any game in this World Cup. And they actually had an expected goals rate of three. 
So that was the kind of the the second most creative performance by a team as well. You could replay that game a number of times, and Brazil might score three or four goals. So, so expected goals of three means that you'd expect them to score three goals based on the quality of chances, right? Yeah. Whereas they only got one, and you'd expect them probably to score a few more because they've got you know particularly good players, right? Um, so you know, I'm not taking anything away from Belgium's performance, but. It's a knockout competition with seven games maximum. These right. Things Brazil losing what, by one goal margin in a game in which I think most people would say they had a very good shout for a penalty as well. Yeah, I think uh, Vincent Company on Gabriel Jesus, the first time I saw it, I didn't think there was much in it, but on the replay, definitely caught him. And I think the ball was still in play uh, when the contact was made. So I think Brazil, perhaps a little hard done by there. I liked what uh, Christoph said about Hazard putting in a very Brazilian performance because he wasn't the only one I didn't think in the Brazilian media they've kind of in the run up to this game they're making a lot about Kevin De Bruyne the way that he is a an all-round midfielder in the way that Brazil hasn't produced for a number of years they you know tossed down with a great uh, columnist often speaks about the the division Brazil has had between defensive destroying midfielders and creative guys further forward and De Bruyne kind of embodies something that maybe Brazilians feel they've lost over the years and also funnily enough one of the country's best respected journalists Juca Cafori actually compared Maduan Fellini to Socrates in the run-up to this match not really based on pure talent but just his style of play and actually the way Fellaini played it wasn't it wasn't a Socrates-esque performance I don't think but that kind of wall of hair he formed with Axel Witzel certainly stumped Brazil's midfield. Yeah, it's an interesting reach, that, from uh, the aforementioned columnist. So post-game, that was what the build-up was like. Post-game, what's the reaction been? Have they been blaming Neymar and and, and Gabriel Jesus for not having their shooting boots on? Uh, Not so far. I mean, that will come. I think think the decision to play Jesus will uh, attract some attention because Chichi is someone who has showed himself to be fairly loyal. You know, look at uh, Paulinho's return to the team when no one would have picked him was because he played under Chichet Corinthians. Same really for Fagner, the right back. So there are, these are guys who are mainly kind of in the squad initially and have done well obviously since, but they're, they're there because they're trusted lieutenants. But I think there's also recognition that Brazil didn't quite deserve this. Like, so Global's uh, front page moment is uh, Que Diabo, which is like, damn it, basically. And another one from Lancia is the dream is over. And then slight criticism starts, you know, Neymar's generation, is it failing? And uh, I think there will be recriminations after this, but not in a way that uh, they think they should have won this because I, I think there's recognition that they're outplayed. Neymar's been such a big story. The fact that how much his absence supposedly conditioned what happened in the last World Cup, coming back from injury for this one, the 14 minutes he'd spent rolling around, which very much was presented as his biggest contribution to the World Cup, very, I think, unfairly. But on Friday night, he did disappoint? Yeah, I think so. He'd he'd actually been quite good against Mexico, aside from the, uh, the theatrics. But here... I wonder whether he's fully fit. He's not quite, uh, I don't know, doesn't quite seem to be as confident dribbling the ball. You know, we're told that he's recovered fully from that foot injury, but it's not just about being okay physically. It's about having the momentum and the confidence, and he definitely wasn't as good as I've seen him. If you think back to 2002, David Beckham wasn't fit came back from injury, pulled out of a tackle in the quarterfinal, which basically cost England, and you know, there's definite parallels there, I think. Mm. But well done to, to Belgium, eh, eh, Tom? And the, the two goals. And in fact, every time they broke, it looked so easy for them 
that you wonder why they don't do this all the time and also what they might do to France. Certainly in the first half, I think the second half was was quite clearly Brazil's half and Belgium sat back, weathered their luck a little bit and looked to hit them on the break. But yeah, that first half, and I think as Jack has already said, the absence of Casemiro played a big part in that. There were times when... Belgian players were just driving through the middle of the pitch and ordinarily you'd expect to find Casemiro there as the warden in front of the back four and he wasn't there. I think in particular that wonderful um, second goal that Belgium scored on the counter-attack, Lukaku picks the ball up in his own half, lovely spin on halfway, driving run and then very nicely weighted pass to De Bruyne who leathers it home. I wonder whether they'll be given that much space against France. Well, it's, it's an interesting battle of two great counter-attacking teams, isn't it? I think the, the big difference between Belgium and France is that Belgium's coach is a, is a coach who builds his team from the front. How many attacking players can I get into the team? And then we'll work back from there. Didier Deschamps, the France coach, is the complete opposite. And we've seen that both managers have been grappling with similar issues. Um, Roberto, Roberto Martinez has stuck by this this three four three system that hasn't always looked all that convincing, but has obviously done the job up to now. And Deschamps has, has, has chopped and changed his attack and now landed on this this formula that's slightly uneven in, in, in terms of the distribution of players laterally across the pitch in the forward areas. Um, and, and, and France have at times looked like a team who are better on the counter-attack. We certainly saw that against Argentina. Mm. Belgium will be wary of that. I think France will be wary of Belgium's pace on the counter-attack. So we'll either get a thrilling counter-attacking affair or we'll get a game that's perhaps a little bit more cautious. Well, Belgium with a fantastic performance. Was it better than France's one? Earlier on Friday, we'll discuss that after this. Listeners, we're down to the business end of the World Cup, and while we give you the game-by-game analysis for a broader cultural and sociological view of the key narratives from Russia and elsewhere, check out the current series of the Game of Our Lives podcast. Join host David Goldblatt as he explores issues such as the tensions between Russia and FIFA, how presidential and governmental politics across the world are intertwined with the greatest sporting tournament on earth, and with the likes of Germany, Spain and Argentina having exited the tournament early and Italy and Holland never having qualified in the first place, how this has truly been the World Cup of the underdog. Search for The Game of Our Lives with David Goldblatt wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. Uruguay took on France in Nizhny Novgorod and were defeated 2-0. Uruguay battling without Cavani. Was that the single most important thing about this game? Jack Lang. Uh, if I had to name one thing, yeah, probably. I think uh, Uruguay were far less dangerous than they had been in particularly the game against Russia. Hmm. I think Suarez looked quite lonely and very frustrated, actually, because neither Christian Stuani or Maxi Gomez, who replaced him, were willing to do the do the, the dog work, really, that Cavani does, pulling out wide. Suarez will do it as well. They kind of take in turns. But that kind of movement is so essential to what they do because the, the midfield is... Uh, fairly narrow most of the time the fullbacks don't attack all that much so those kind of channel runs are really intrinsic to their style of play and they never really got going I thought they were snappy in the tackle as you might expect but not particularly impressive right a 2-0 scoreline for France but certainly the first half quite tight were you to swap the keepers around you could make a case it'd be Uruguay going through I mean you think back to that amazing Loris save on one hand and the pretty amazing um, was Lera non-save at the other? Huh. 
Yeah, he carries to that shot pretty much. Um, and you think today, I mean, essentially, um, Belgium and France both with excellent goalkeeping performances, and you know that's what you need to get through to the last stages at a World Cup. I mean, you know, to back up what Jack said, uh, Suarez didn't have a single shot. He didn't even have a touch in the opposition penalty box. So it wasn't as if Uruguay was just playing without Cavani. They're pretty much playing without both of them. Mm. Um, the only thing I thought was a bit strange was there was this kind of constant thing that people were saying that Uruguay were dirty um, when they're not particularly. You know, they came into the quarterfinals with the third fewest fouls, with the fewest yellow cards. Um, and it, a bit like, you know, this World Cup has seen people still kind of go to your kind of standard stereotypes for certain regions. I think probably the bigger concern for South American football is that with Brazil and Uruguay going out on Friday, um, it's going to be at least 20 years uh, of European teams winning the World Cup or 20 years without wow. a non-European team winning it. So. Wow. Yeah. Um, France like a goal from a defender, or in Muslera's case, from a goalkeeper, but uh, Antoine Griezmann was behind both of the French goals. And Tom, I think he really impressed you on Friday. Yes, I think his all-round game was very impressive um, and he played a really big role in the first goal. It was his free kick that led to the Varane header and he checked his run as he ran up to take the free kick. And that was enough to momentarily throw Uruguay's defenders off guard. It allowed Varane to get a run on Stuani, who was marking him, um, and score with a really nice header, glancing header into the bottom left corner. I think Griezmann really helped to set the the tone for France with the way that he was prepared to um, play with his back to goal. There was a lot of talk before the game about his uh, interest in Uruguayan football, Uruguayan culture. Luis Suarez had a few things to say about that. wasn't particularly impressed by it, but I think we saw elements of that. You know, we've seen Griezmann already in this World Cup, um, notably during the Argentina game, instructing his teammates to slow things down. And I think he was was really um, influential in, in setting the tone in that mm. way. And then the second goal. We'd not really seen much of him in terms of his goal threat, but he gets the ball in a decent shooting position out on the left, decides to have a crack, and it's going pretty much straight at Muslera. And he seemed to anticipate a swerve Muslera that didn't come. He jumped to his left, and, and the ball didn't really move as much as he was expecting it to. And he got both hands behind it, and it just you know, goes right through his gloves, loops right. over the line. And you felt the fight go out of Uruguay almost immediately. And, and the one thing we always expect from Uruguay is this great fighting spirit, the Gara Charua. And we didn't really see that. And you had no. the very peculiar sight late in the game of Jose Jimenez crying while Antoine Griezmann was lining up a free kick. And, and there were still sort of three or four minutes plus stoppages to go. And I think that was just a sign that added to the fact that Suarez just wasn't having any sort of impact that Cavani was sitting on in, in the dugout looking glum. Uruguay felt the game was up long before they got to the end of the game. And it was yeah quite a sad way for them to go out, really. Well, Duncan, the top three favourites coming into this tournament, they're all out already. They are, and it sort of sums up how World Cups are very different to leagues and even Champions Leagues, really. I think Griezmann's a good example. He's now scored um, seven goals in his last six knockout games in tournaments. And obviously people can remember last week, Ronaldo and Messi... Neither of them have ever scored in a knockout game at a World Cup. So, you know, doing it at the business end of, of a tournament is a very different sort of football, really. Um, and that's why you see, I think, you know, we're very likely to see or possibly see a new winner this World Cup. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yes. Yes. Saturday. 
England Day. England taking on Sweden Saturday afternoon in Samara. Later on, Russia will be up against Croatia. But England, Duncan, England against Sweden. It is a quarterfinal. The benchmark for, for many people, England, if they get to a quarterfinal, I'll be happy, they say, before the tournament. And England have got to a quarterfinal, so presumably they are happy. But um, it's a, a stage where England have only got through two out of eight times. Obviously, in 1966, when they played Argentina, um, England actually committed loads of fouls in that game, 35, and didn't get a booking, which is uh, contrary to what a lot of people remember from that match. And then obviously Cameroon, which went to extra time in 1990, yeah. um, and two penalties of, you know, perhaps varying uh, dubiousness. So um, obviously this is a New England team, but um, yeah, they come coming off a performance where they their last shot on target uh, in the last 16 was Harry Kane's penalty. So yeah. they need to step up. It's a new team with an old soundtrack and an old rival as well, Sweden. Only three wins against the Swedes in 16 meetings. Of course, it was a Danny Welbeck goal. Do you remember that one? Made it 3-2 in Euro 2012. There have been two draws at the World Cup, Germany in 2006 and in Japan four years before that. The last time England met Sweden, Tom, do you remember what happened? This. Ibrahimovic can do four goals. Ja, det är inte helt otänkbart för nu är Johart ute och det blir en, det blir mål, det blir mål, det är det värsta jag har sett, det är inte klokt, han cyklar in den där från 25 meter, det är inte klokt wow. det ska inte gå, 4-2, all four Swedish goals scored by Zlatan, producer Ben has been speaking to our friend Frida Fagerlund from Aftonbladet find out the reasons the Swedes think the football may not be coming to this home after all. <laughs> well, I obviously feel that England is a good squad. I mean, so many players with pace, but Sweden has proven themselves many times in this tournament and they're really good at making their opponent look bad. Of course, we don't underestimate this English side at the same time we know that we have a very good chance. Because, like I said, when we played uh, Switzerland, uh, Granit Xhaka was almost like, it was almost like he wasn't on the pitch. We made him look so bad. So with that said, we we know that we have a really good chance. Uh, but we also know uh, that we need to have respect for the English side. So I think it's going to be a very tough game for both sides. Tell us more about Euler Toivon and Frida. Uh, Sunderland fans will remember him for an utterly unremarkable spell in the Northeast. He scored exactly no league goals for Toulouse in a year, but he's got four for Sweden in that time. Uh, and he's clearly a bit of a handful. Is he, uh, is he your most dangerous player? Many people talk about Andreas Granqvist as, as being a key player. And Andreas is definitely a great leader and everything. But I feel that uh, Ulla Toivonen does things on the pitch that are very useful for us and make the difference. He was the one who, who gave the ball to Emil Forsberg, now against Switzerland. Um, he does these little things like um, during the Germany game when uh, Sebastian Rudi got his foot in, in, in the face and uh, he broke his nose, I think. And uh, of course, that's not a good thing. But at the same time, uh, those minutes when Rudy was treated outside the pitch um, actually made Sweden come into the game again. So, um, yeah, he's a very tough player uh, to play against, but a very useful useful player for this, this Swedish team. And what about penalties, Frida? Have Sweden been practising? 
they they don't really need to. <laughs> I mean, there's many players in this team that are very good at penalties. Um, if we go back to 2015, uh, the under 21 Euros, uh, where where Sweden won, uh, we actually won on penalties, and four of those players from that side are in this Swedish squad. So we have many many good uh, penalty shooters uh, like. Uh, and definitely, I mean, Andreas Granqvist, uh, he's proven himself m- many times uh, this tournament, uh, scoring very good penalties. So I feel that um, if it comes down to that, I actually feel quite, uh, quite calm, actually. Well, Frida's confident then, eh? And it sounds like their team is too. Michael Cox the other night was positing that Sweden could represent another Iceland. What say you, Duncan? Yeah, very. Much. I think that's a fair shout. Um, Sweden, kind of a, a luxury Iceland, so I don't know what sort of Viennettas they'll be pushing out, but really good ones, I guess. <laughs> um, the, I mean, they've actually created, you know, relatively the same quality of chances as England uh, uh-huh. in this tournament. Which, when you think of Sweden's group and the teams they've had to play compared to England, and also this kind of thing in England at the moment, where everyone kind of just assumes Sweden are really defensive, and they are very solid defensively. Well, they also have incredibly low possession. I mean, kind of around the thirty percent mark. Yeah, but, you know, possession football is, uh, you know, semi-debunked in this era, I think. Right. So it's going to, I think the key, but a bit like Belgium on Friday, England need to start really well. England's best performances have come in the first half in this World Cup. Had more than double the amount of shots on target in the first half compared to the second half. Whereas Sweden, the reverse, and most of their goals have come late on. So, um, yeah, it really is about 3 to 3.45, I think. UK time, at least. Set pieces have been... England's stock in trade in this World Cup. Uh, there are those who suggest that's not going to be quite so easy against the central Swedish pairing of Gronqvist and Lindelof. Potentially, yes. Right. Um, I mean, Sweden are, as, as Duncan was saying, a very impressive team defensively. I think Andreas Gronqvist has been perhaps the most impressive centre-back at the tournament, certainly one of them, if you add in his penalties as well. Mm. And this is a team that really enjoys defending. Um you think back to the qualifying playoff against Italy. OK, this is not the Italy of years gone by, but over 180 minutes of a two-legged playoff, Sweden didn't concede a single goal. Um, and we saw in the last 16 game against Switzerland, they were under the cosh quite a lot. Uh, I thought Switzerland played most of the more attractive football. Um, but Sweden have great confidence in their ability to to weather pressure like that. You, you mentioned the, the possession stats. Um, so I think England will be faced by the most well-drilled team that they've yet come up against at this World Cup, a team that are happy to sit back and defend, that um, enjoy counter-attacking. Um, and, and as you've said, England don't have a great record against them, so it, you know, it might be quite a squeaky one. Mm. Jack, what do you think? They did beat Mexico 3-0. I'm still a bit staggered after watching them attempt to score a goal against Switzerland. How did they score three against Mexico? Well, a few slices of luck, I think, but... Yeah, the the attackers, I think, are still quite blunt. I think England will have to make mistakes for Sweden to to score, but then Sweden are the kind of team that push you into making those mistakes. But I, you know, I, I think England should have the materials and the the nous to do this. Should obviously is a word that hasn't gone down particularly well with England teams over the years. But I think there's there's just a nice feeling about the team. You know, it's not it's, this isn't to say anything new but you know the communion you saw with the fans after the game against Colombia I just think there's a there's a great spirit about this team probably say the same about Sweden sure but I think 
the morale coupled with the the greater technical quality. I'd be surprised if England didn't win this. All right. Sweden have a better record at this World Cup, let's be frank, than England do. They've beaten better teams. Uh, and p- perhaps more convincingly, with the exception of the Panama result. Yeah, but they haven't got as many good memes as us. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, we're, I think, guaranteed world champions on that count. And uh, yeah, I'm quite enjoying them. I know some people find them quite cloying, but... What's that, memes? Yeah, they, right. they're just it's coming home stuff. I, I think you know, what this World Cup's done, which we haven't had for a long time, is kind of unite the country. You know, even if England do go out against Sweden, there's not going to be the recriminations. There's not going to be the what's wrong with English football. It's going to be, you know, we're entering a new exciting era with loads of young players coming through that, you know, if we, ha- we haven't won it this time, but we could do it, you know, in four years' time. I was, I was at the park earlier, and this sounds very twee, but I was watching uh, some youths play football right and they were you know messing around and quite a few times i didn't have my binoculars duncan no uh quite a few times they were you know making references to badil and skin like oh you know just these little comments yeah and maybe it's arriving at overkill now but certainly my generation you know i grew up for you know 10 15 years watching utter dross football soundtracked by morons singing about World Wars and IRA bombers. Yeah, those songs are still getting an airing. I think they are, but mm. the, the actual, you know, there's a tunefulness and a, a wry spirit to the Bazeal and Skinner that I think, uh, you know, perhaps represents something a little bit more knowing and positive. I was at the park earlier today and my 90-year-old blind mother said, uh, I don't <laughs> care whether we home. go out or not, but it's coming home. And then my five-year-old boy said... I think it's significant how the nation has really united behind Southgate's new politics of inclusiveness. Yeah. Tom, as a Welshman, where do you stand? Yeah, it's it's the first time that I've been in England for a World Cup since 2006, mm. which was a little while ago. And um, I think if you told me that I would have to endure this experience one day, I might not have been all that excited about it. But it has been very good-natured, and I think there is a a positivity and enthusiasm about this England team that that people relate to in a very positive way. And, I mean, Gareth Southgate is being held up as some kind of saint. I've seen all sorts of Facebook posts and Twitter memes about how he is this sort of Mother Teresa figure. And, you know, he he is... He's just a very nice bloke. Um, And, uh, yeah, there is just a... There's a niceness to it. There's Mm. not that sense of menace or entitlement that I think non-English people sometimes get a little bit wound up by. He's a podcast listener, of course. Well, certainly has been in the past, probably is now, even even now on the on the shores of the Gulf of Finland. Um, yeah. Big Gaza Southgate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm um, sure he is. I'm not saying it's big, but England fans have quit their jobs, hired private jets and that kind of thing just to be there in Samara Saturday afternoon. What kind of scoreline are they going to go home with? Duncan? I'm going to say it's going to be another draw. It's going to go to extra time. What? Yeah. And then penalties? Maybe. And it's interesting because the Swedes are sounding overconfident for me. Well, we've now gone through a penalty shootout and Mm. we, you know, we know how to do it. I mean, the key takeaway from our penalty shootout is don't let 28-year-olds take penalties because Henderson... because... Henderson's 28. All the previous 28-year-olds to take penalties for England in World Cups have missed. Jack, you've already given us your score, which was, I think, 2-1 to England. Yes. Tom? I don't know. I, I agree with Duncan. I think it's going to be very close. Mm. And I have a feeling that England are going to get over the line somehow. I think that having gone through the um, 
the tension and the trauma of extra time and then penalties against Colombia has done this team a lot more good than if they hadn't conceded that stoppage time goal that Yerry Mina scored. Um, so I, th- I think England are a well set to go through that thing again, and I think I think they might have to. Okay, all right. Well, that Saturday afternoon, and after all the drama and passion. In Samara, Sochi will be the venue for the final time in this World Cup as the host nation Russia take on Croatia. Now, Croatia have been having a very decent tournament for themselves despite their preparations being overshadowed by the disaffection between a lot of the fans and the team, which is born out of the Players Association in some cases, particularly that of Modric and and Lovren with the former Croatian FA chief and Dinamo Zagreb chief Zdravko Mamic, who's now facing prison time for uh, quite large-scale corruption. A lot of fans seem to feel that this wasn't their team. Has success changed their mind at all? And what are the prospects against Russia? We dialed up Croatian football expert Juraj Vrdoljak. The, the, the society is still quite divided on the, the opinion of the, the, the concept of supporting this national team because... Um, those who wanted to support in the first hand uh, now obviously are really euphoric and really are ecstatic and uh, it just sort of multiplied considering the the success the national team is enjoying at this moment but those who who are not really keen on supporting it uh, because of the obvious reasons they're still they're still pretending that this isn't happening so it's a really bizarre situation because uh you really get the feeling that there is a cold war kind of situation going on we we think of croatia as as a nation that that identifies itself so much with this side that it seems crazy from the outside that you would be at this point of a world cup with the potential of of going through tomorrow to a to a semi-final and it not having the country caught up in passion how how strange is that for you? Well, it obviously is really strange. I mean, the national team is like a democracy manifest in Croatia. And it's sad that a lot of people cannot accept these players as their own, as their representatives. The opponents have their valid point and you cannot exclude them because of that. And just to sum it up really briefly, the problem with the national team for those fans is that the players are too closely associated with Mamic? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, they're portrayed, the, the whole uh, the whole uh, court case re- portrayed them as uh, official uh, accomplices in the whole case, uh, which brought even more light, dark light uh, upon them. So, yeah, the, the ones who are critical of them beforehand just sort of became more critical because they now have an official uh, statement from the court saying that they were involved heavily in the whole case. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't matter for those who only want to see them as mere footballers. They claim that uh, they had no other choice but to do that, but to to sort of give give a hand uh, to the hand who fed them mm. and who brought them to this point of their career in a way. So, yeah, it's a really complicated situation. And unfortunately, it really reflects on the whole support of the national team. Yes, yes, yes. You're also saying, by the way, that Croatia would probably prefer to play England because they're more of an expansive team and would give them some room to play into, unlike, say, Sweden. And that was the case against Denmark and will probably be the case against 
Russia? Or no, Russia will come out and play at them, do you think? No, I think what we saw from Russia against Spain was that as this tournament goes on, Russia just sort of retreat deeper and deeper towards their own goal. Um, we were all very impressed by Russia over the first two games. Didn't expect them to play so well, uh, to score so many goals. But over the the final group game, the 3-0 loss to Uruguay and that 1-1 one 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 draw with Spain, they've had two shots on target across wow. the two games. So Russia have kind of shut up shop and... It was a real back-to-the-wall performance against Spain. I mean, inevitably, Spain had all the ball. Russia just spent the entire game throwing people in, in front of Spain's forwards. Um, and, it, yeah, it, it was a real sort of gritty, ground-out victory on penalties. And I expect they're probably setting themselves up for a similar sort of game against Croatia, who are another ball-playing team. I think a key difference between Croatia and Spain is that Croatia have got much more of a cutting edge I think Spain, you take Diego Costa out of the equation and you've got a lot of quite similar, super talented, but quite similar little scurrying midfielders. Croatia, you've got um, Perisic and Rebic, you know, proper sort of almost old-fashioned wingers, mm. get to the byline, get the ball in, pose a goal threat. You've got Mandzukic, who with his aerial strength and his physical qualities, with all the passing midfielders behind them. So I expect that the sort of threat that they pose will be a bit more multifaceted than what Spain posed. Um, but I think regardless, I imagine Russia will probably set up in a similar way. Who's going to go through, Tom? Croatia. Right. Who do England want to face more, do you think? Croatia, who look technically more gifted, or Russia, who are the bleeding host nation? Oh, Russia, definitely. I think Croatia are much better side yeah. and I think uh, I think Russia would be great opponents for, for England I think the way uh, you know Cro- in a similar way to England actually Croatia got a monkey off their back in that last round that you know they hadn't won a knockout game uh, since 1998 when they obviously did very well in France they you know lost on penalties to Turkey in 2008 lost to Portugal an extra time uh, two years ago at the Euros and so for this generation of players who had kind of been tainted with that underperformers tag, I thought that was very important. And I think they should have the the tools to, to see off Russia. Interestingly, Russia, at Moscow Zoo, they got so excited about Russia's progress that they've uh-huh. named a an eagle after Igor Akinfeyev. Is that right? Moscow Zoo could not remain on the sidelines of such an important event. I'm Red glad it, they've weighed in because you know their absence from the World Cup conversation. <laughs> Akinfeyev for the they, eagle. Have, have they called him Eagle Akinfeyev? Yeah, it would uh, Eagle Akinfeyev. That, that eagle, eagle, eagle Akinfeyev would be great. There's really? also apparently I couldn't get much detail on this. There's also been a bison named after Artem Zuba. Okay. So, How do you say bison in, in Russian? Does it sound like Juba or something? I think it's probably that his physical characteristics ah, are right. reminiscent of he has a big bison. shoulders. He's a big unit, isn't he? could be a bison. Right. I just hope they don't kill any of these animals like Rabio the, the octopus. The octopus. Would be right, sad. Pete. Yeah. Your shout on this one, Duncan? Well, not to labour the, the running uh, analogy, but... Did you know, well, not to labour it, but uh, Russia run over 35 kilometres further than Croatia. In they know what the pictures are like, don't they? They've, they've been up and down before. Yeah. <laughs> but um, not to labour that point, but uh, they've their World Cup's a little bit like a 400 metre runner on oh. the outside lane who's gone off really, really fast. They had loads of shots in the first couple of games. Now everyone, the bends, you know, it's all evening up and they're kind of just sort of straining to get across the line. That's a really interesting analogy. Yeah, quite interesting. Um, I mean, basically, they've got a... The, the history says that hosts do really well in quarterfinals. The last five hosts to reach a quarterfinal have gone through. But as the others say, um, you would expect Croatia. But this World Cup has seen many surprises. It certainly has.
All right. Well, if you're a fan of surprises, you might like to know the odds on both of Saturday's games. So let's hear from producer Ben, who's talking to Paddy Power. Thank you, Jimbo. Lee Price, you're back and I'm back and we're talking about the last two quarterfinals. The evening game is Russia versus Croatia. The hosts have been a revelation. Can they beat Croatia and end up in a semi-final? I don't want to say no because we saw what happened against Spain, but I don't think so. So Russia are 11-4 to to beat Croatia, who are 11-10 to and therefore the favourites. I actually think massive value in Croatia here. Any other uh, stage of the tournament, this would have been heavily odds on for Croatia, but we've seen what happened against Spain. Who knows what's going on with Russia? Uh, this is actually tighter in the odds than I would expect. Value in Croatia. OK, and let's talk about the afternoon game. England versus Sweden. Wow, who'd have thought it? Yeah, Jules and May still gleaming. This is a dream draw for England. Um, they are 11-10 to 10 to progress to a World Cup semi-final. Who thought I'd be saying that a week or two ago? Sweden are 3-1 to one to win the match. Extra time, which seems inevitable, is 21 to 10. Come on, England. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com. It's 18 plus only. BeGambleAware.org. And when the fun stops, stop. Tom Williams, your book doing well? Yes, yes, I think so. Got lots of nice tweets from mm-hmm. people saying they like it and very few tweets from people saying they don't like it. Oh, so well, that's, that's, good. that's a nice balance. It is. It's better that. Do you speak football, of course, is the That is, that is the that's book. That's the book. Yes. Uh, super. Jack Lang, thanks for being with us. My is that pleasure. you done for the World Cup now? Another? I think I might have been knocked out today. All the South Americans are gone. So there's cause for celebrations amongst the listenership. <laughs> Can we also mention that Jack is wearing yellow today in what I trust to be a show of support for... Purely yes. coincidental. Right. It's not, not a Brazil shirt. And uh, Duncan Alexander, by night known as Oily Sailor, you're ruled out of the semi finals. Why is that? I am in the Alps. Oh, nice. What yeah. are you doing there? Cycling. Ah, of course you are, yeah. yeah. So I might have to watch England in a World Cup semi final in France for the chance to play France. Wow. Be, it could get very confusing. Will you be there for Belgium, France as well? Yeah. Right. Well, that'd be very atmospheric. Could be, yeah. Good. All right, we look forward to hearing more about that on your return. Uh, Saturday's Totally Football show will feature Michael Cox, James Horncastle and Sasha Gurionov. I wonder what kind of mood he's going to be in late on Saturday night. Anyway, you can find out by joining us Saturday night or Sunday morning for more Totally Football show. Remember, you can catch up with us on Twitter at The Totally Show and we're on Facebook. Super. Look forward to hearing from you soon. For now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. Subscribe now and get the latest episode delivered right to your phone for free. Supporting your team at the World Cup can be a phenomenal experience. But then Beckham boots Simeone, Lampard's goal isn't given or someone puts on an England shirt and misses a penalty. The highs, more often than not, come with lows. And that's a little bit like life, really. So while we're all supposed to be buzzing with World Cup excitement and lapping up all this football, all that VAR and all those Nigeria kits, remember that someone close to you might be going through one of life's tougher times. Every day on average, 12 men take their own life in the UK. That's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. Scary, huh? But that's part of the problem. Many of us still feel mental health and suicide are taboo topics, and this can stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it most. That's why we're working with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. We here at the Totally Football Show believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the ups and the downs, the glorious wins and the embarrassing red cards, the good days and the bad. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. 
Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provides a free confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. They've also got a website which is packed with the kind of info you need if you or any of your mates are having a rough one. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.